Hello listeners and welcome to today's episode of Blind Insights. You know I like listening to, reading, learning strange things. So today's guest has read Kropotkin. Today's guest has read Donella Meadows. Today's guest has been an activist and a senator and back to being an activist. In 450 pages, I smiled at hearing odd books, interesting ideas, probably more than in any single book I've listened to for two years, which made me very happy. So today on Blind Insights, we're going to be joined by activist and former Senator Scott Ludlam. The ultimate hidden truth of the world is that it is something that we make and could just as easily make differently. David Graeber, 1961 to 2020. Welcome to Blind Insights. I'm joined today by David Olney. How are you, David? Very well, thank you, Tim. It's good to hear. Very surreal, I find. I'm sitting across from what must be a, a modern-day Max Stirner. I'm not sure if that uh, <laughs> if that was a. Uh, new. What face did Scott make to that? Oh, That's it, new. It was. It's the coat and the and the hair. I don't know. It was just. It was. Thank you for joining me, Scott Ludlam. Oh, absolutely, my pleasure. It's lovely to be here. <laughs> Do you know who Max Stirner is? Or? I, I have not the faintest idea. That's, I, oh. So the look that we're describing is I what right. I okay. see. Max Stirner was a hardcore 19th century anarchist who at one point when Mikhail Bakunin, the most famous of the Russian anarchists of the period, and Marx were arguing in a cafe, Stirner stood up, threw his coffee cup down, and said, you're a pair of Christians and stormed out. So I'm already enjoying this experience. Yes, <laughs> helpful. So this is what I thought. I think thought you would like to hear that you know Marx got kicked in the proverbials for being too soft. <laughs> <laughs> All right, away we go. <laughs> I don't know where to begin with your book other than to begin at the beginning. When you write the description of building the roadblock in the forest to protect the forest in the beginning, after so many years of teaching security and explaining the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, I'm like. Crap, are they setting up an IED? Because you, your brain goes to what you know. <laughs> I, <would've... laughs> I don't ever remember IEDs in forestry rescue, no. forestry activism. And I was so glad when someone chained himself to the car that was concreted to the ground. How old were you when you were involved in that protest and watched someone literally get in this car and chain themselves to a car that was now concreted to the ground? At that point, I'm 28 years old. Wow, so you're already, what, maybe 10 years into activism? No, no, that was my first year. I'd kind of been, my, my life as a, as a freelance commercial artist had kind of been blown up and I was looking around for something different and meaningful to do. Uh, Anti-nuclear activism was what caught me. That got you in first and yeah. then the other things grew out of it. They grew out of it. In yeah. Western Australia at the time, this is the late 1990s, the forest movement was really hitting its peak yeah. um, to protect old growth forests. That campaign is still going. Yeah by the way, 20 years later, but it was hitting its peak. And so we were learning from this forest crew so that we could mount effective uranium mine blockades. So I spent a brief time down at Wattle Forest in the southwest of WA and met activists who were blocking access roads by cementing cars into them. Mm. So no, not an IED, something much simpler, yeah. safer, and much more effective, I would imagine, in that kind of campaign. Oh yeah, for the campaign you're involved in, where ideally you want getting that one person out to be difficult. An amazing way to do it and do it very quickly. 
And the wonderful description in the acknowledgements of the end of the book, I think, if I remember correctly, you say thanks to your mum and dad for buying you the bags of concrete that got used that day. That was my birthday present that year. (laughs) Which is so cool. That's a shout out to my folks. Yeah, well done. For backing us. Well done, Scott's parents. Those bags of concrete (laughs) helped start an awesome book. That's great. That will inspire an awful lot of people. I love that you picked up on that detail in particular. Yeah, because how many people read the acknowledgements? Only weird people like me. Or Yeah, or people who are checking to see <laughs> if, they're, if there. they're in it. <laughs> Whereas, again, structuring the book must have been so difficult. It was a nightmare because I had no idea what I was doing. So that took a long time. Yeah, but you don't need to know what you're doing, but you need to find the links that work. It and took- the, the fact the links work is is fantastic because where you're going back and forth between the 2019-2020 fires, these earlier moments in Australia, bouncing around the world, what largely after you'd left the Senate, most of the trips overseas were in that period of time. That's right. Most of that research work was done in 2018 after I'd left. Yeah, so you just had this incredible year of seeing basically the best of people and the worst of rapacious capitalism all in, what, six or eight months? 12 All months. That's, 12 wow. Months. So Lebanon was the first stop, and that was at the end of, of um, what on earth year are we in? 2017. 2020. And about a year later, I finished up with um, a couple of weeks in Africa. Wow. Yeah, because like when you're describing Mongolia, um, and you know, obviously you've, you've flown from somewhere else, and now you're in this totally no. alternate universe. I came by train. Um, that was that was a magic couple of days. I caught the ferry across from Hong Kong and then took the train through western uh, through eastern China wow. and then up into Mongolia. From, yeah, from Beijing. I've had a few master's students um, who are you know, sort of up and coming uh, bureaucrats and negotiators for the Mongolian government to try and deal with the mining companies. So I got exposed to the Mongolian sense of humour and stoicness it's, by these yeah. these master students who were like moving granite. They are what they are. They're immovable. They are their culture, their lives, their experience. It's so clear and it's so, it's substance. There's mm. just this depth to that identity and that way of being. Mm. It's a magnificent place. I was treated very well there. So I was there as a guest of the Mongolian Greens right. who were gearing up for the forthcoming election in coalition with a number of other parties, including one involving former prime minister and president of the country. So I had remarkable access. We did a couple of really mind-blowing field trips. And my lasting sense of that place actually was the familiarity with which extractive capitalism operates, whether it's in the Pilbara, the Hunter Doesn't Valley, matter where. or the Steppe. Yeah. yeah, the machine's the same. The, the machine is the same. The extractive mentality is the same. Yeah. Some of the resistance strategies are also the same. Mm. Yeah, because at the end of the day, people have to resist with what they've got. And normally resisting means you don't have a lot. If you're resisting, you're normally under-resourced and you're normally out on the fringe because the system has convinced most people to just accept extraction and GDP growth as being significant. There's, there's, and there's also this calculated effort to make sure the benefits are spread strategically as minimum as possible as it takes to buy consent. Mm, just buy people off enough to shut them up. Well, right. that, that's a good point. Can yeah. I ask for a definition uh, as a layperson of state capture? Not not a term I've ever used confidently. No, I would love us to use it more. So it's a phrase I came across in South Africa where they're using it to describe the capture of key key elements of the South African economy by a tiny handful of elite families. Post This is post-apartheid. In the Australian context, it's where the resources sector has got a lock on political institutions such that 
elections cease to perform they really don't matter the effect they yeah. they matter and i don't feel like myself or my greens colleagues or other independents mm. are wasting their time in there but it becomes very entrenched so one of the signatures of state capture is the hollowing out and repurposing of democratic mm. institutions which is really it's different to corruption it's much more systematic mm. laws aren't being broken because laws no. are being written by the same to investor suit blocks. the group of so tim the context for australia is when we go back to when we interviewed cameron murray about game of mates mm -hmm. Really, state capture happened in Australia through Game of Mates. Mm -hmm. Mates from high school, mates from uni, mates from polo, mates from whatever. Went, well, that's our mate. Mm. You know, if we do something that helps him, he'll do something that helps us. Well, if it's good for us, surely it's good for everyone. Mm. And yet, as I was reading, it's got sort of different countries that's happened different ways. So if we look at you know the US in the 1990s under Clinton, that wasn't state capture. That was Clinton actively giving away capacity. He was so... Oh, ben. yeah, okay. Mm. He was so thrilled by what quote-unquote wealth could do and big business could do that he ran towards them smiling. Mm. So we've had politicians who have to be manipulated and we've had politicians who drank the Kool-Aid before they were even in power. Mm -hmm. it, just, it ends up in state capture either way, but there appears to be multiple ways to get to state capture. Yeah, and it, I think you're right. It's important to not oversimplify it because yeah. it has a different imprint depending on who's doing the capturing. In, yes. Le in Lebanon, it's religious sects that are yeah. hundreds or some of them are thousands of years old. Yeah. Uh, in South Africa, it was a tiny handful of families. In Australia, it's the resources sector. Yeah. The US is an enormous, diversified, much more complex economy, mm. and the internal politics of US elites are more complex than they are here. Mm. In Australia, for better or worse, it's simpler. It's the resources sector. Yep. It's their allies in the commercial press, mainly the Murdoch press, but a little bit more broadly. Yeah. And the, the ways that their peak bodies and their lobbyists have captured the political tier such that elections, it, they, they kind of cease to perform that pressure valve function that they normally Yeah, would. it's out on the periphery that voting matters. You can get interesting people in, but the interesting people may not be able to put themselves in a position of being the balance of power because the mainstream vote is still too big and too mainstream. Which is not an argument for giving up, by the way. And no, it's an argument for making the people on the fringe more of them. That's right. Mm. More of us, we have to go harder. I think we have to be angrier. We have to call it out and it's name it. it for what it is. But above all, we must not give up. This is a, a great thing about your book, a point I've made to Tim ever since I taught him in 2018 and to his generation generally, is remember you're dangerous. Mm. Until you remember you're dangerous, the system won't back down. Okay, which 19th century anarchist is that? Because I love that. Uh, that's no one. That's Dave's interpretation of most of 19th century anarchists. All right, well, I'm here for it. Yeah. The, the, you know, until people can remember they're dangerous, and only when you are dangerous will the system go, <sighs> systems don't fear anything they can either buy or roll over. Or they can watch us march around in circles. So there's certain yeah, acceptable that parameters. Yeah, wonderful example of, in the book of, of doing the lap in Melbourne. And some people are leaving as the march gets back and you have that horrible moment of going, are we marching forward or only in a circle? Right. Yeah. So there's this, there's this beautiful quote um, from about midway through the book from a former Australian prime minister where he says, we will tolerate dissent as long as it is ineffective. Mm. And he's speaking there to anti-apartheid campaigners wow. who are in the process of becoming effective through boycott, divestment and sanctions, which, mm. which the establishment in South Africa hated. Mm. It helped break apartheid, that external pressure. I think it's going to do the same for the Palestinian people if we can maintain it um, and step it up. 
But the point where the system starts to react and spray you with tear gas or, or, or try to hurt you is where you know you're starting to hit yeah. a nerve. And that's the point when you need to double down. You need to normalize pain. Well, that's a Gandhian philosophy that I've got a, an uneasy relationship with because in some circumstances, if there's not clear media channels so that people can see you being tear gassed and beaten, then they'll just kill us and then the situation... You'd be now responsible for your own media channel and that's what's changed dramatically. Well, here we are on a We're podcast. We're always here, yeah. yeah. Again, 100 GoPros and capturing them via Wi-Fi to a device far enough away from the crowd that even if the GoPros are destroyed, the footage isn't. Right. You know, this is all something now where... As much as concrete was important in that forest, the 100 GoPros and the portable Wi-Fi network is now the equivalent of those bags of concrete. They are. So the only reason I'm putting up a flag, which is not a stop sign, but just a flag, is that invoking repression is not a straightforward path to victory. We've just no. gone 33 years since the massacre in Tiananmen Square, mm. which was also documented internally within China and internationally. H hundreds and possibly thousands mm. of... of um, of workers and of students were slaughtered in that event and it was documented and yet nothing like that has really been allowed to happen in China mm. since then. Mm. So it's not it's not absolutely straightforward that if we expose ourselves to repression, things will shift, but it's, no. it's obviously part of the repertoire. Actually, this is interesting where you sort of look at so much of the literature in the book on when is a social revolution going to work? You know, what are the, the tipping points? And you, know, you come up with some really interesting literature because... Yeah, you know, part of having taught security for so long is going, all right, why do 19-year-old males do dangerous shit? They do dangerous shit, largely for a sense of redemption. But personal redemption doesn't mean you change the underlying circumstances. But one of the authors that you know doesn't turn up in your book because he's more obscure than the people you pick is a, a political theorist called Ted Robert Gurr. And he argued for a revolution to succeed or to happen in the first place, but normally for it to succeed, two expectations had have to be broken. First, the expectation that life can get better and then the expectation that it shouldn't get worse. And you won't get an improvement until both of those expectations are shattered and people actually realise they've got nothing left to lose. They have to fight for better because the only certainty is it's going to be even worse. How far do you reckon we are from that moment in Australia? Oof. Oh, see, this is something when we started the podcast that we've always come back to and yeah. talked about, mm. that either this generation or the last ones who kind of you know, suck on the bottle of you know, sweet vitamin mix and don't realise the world's going under, <laughs> or it changes very soon. Mm. But we're at a tipping point now where it just has to, because the dream it can get better is fundamentally over. Technology doesn't get that much better. It wastes resources too much. Mm -hmm. And it is getting worse for most people now. Which yeah, means this yeah. is the point, much like in Russia in 1907 or 1905, whichever the failed uprising was in St. Petersburg. 1905, I think. Yep. If you look back and apply Ted Robert Gurr's logic then, the problem with you know, that uprising is they still dreamed it could get better and they didn't think it could get worse. So they didn't fight that hard. Whereas once World War I was on, the average Russian knew everything was getting worse and was just going to keep getting worse. So when you had Arensky and the Mensheviks saying, look, we build democracy, we'll be lovely, garbage. No one believed them. What they believed is it was going to get worse unless change was radical. So there's times in history where Ted Robert Gurr's logic lines up beautifully. And we seem to be in that point now where at the moment, I think the biggest problem we're seeing, we're trying to bring social revolution about, is that most people are still internalizing the failure for it to get better and the reality it's going to get worse into you know, 
sort of anxiety and depression that debilitates their ability for action. So the big thing to overcome at the moment is don't debilitate yourself, alter the universe, you know, which is part of the reason why we changed and st- you know, stuck the David Graeber quote in the beginning of the podcast. Mm. You know, we didn't mean to end up more and more on the path to making people realize, hang on, <laughs> the world's a mess. It needs to be remade. It needs to break some of that apathy as well and that yeah. we're all responsible for what that is. Yeah. Mm. Some of it's apathy, some of it is debt, which also brings us back to Graeber. Yeah. It's just financial straitjacket of just needing to stay above water. Mm. Yeah. And that's no accident that that's entrapped yeah. such a large yeah. number of people. That and crushing um, housing unaffordability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. But yeah, as to, as to what that triggers and when, you know those tipping points are out there, but there's no way that you can predict exactly when it's going to no. come. But again, it's interesting putting all that literature together. You put more and more of it together and you get an idea of how bad it has to be before you'll get enough people taking action. And then it depends what they can come up with in the situation they're in. You know, can they you know, come together in a unified direction? So it's very interesting in the book when you talk about the fact that rather than people saying the Anthropocene, you know, people are starting to say the Misanthropocene. Uh, you know, the idea that you know, we're realising people are the problem and starting to hate other people. Yeah. And going, hang on, no, 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 we are the problem, but you can't solve the problem by getting rid of some of us. Mm. <laughs> that doesn't work. It's yeah. how we all behave, not how many of us there are. You know, we use too much. Most people don't have enough. Most people don't. And population climbed off the doubling path in the late 1960s. Yeah. The consumption's going the other way. That's still inflecting upwards. That's what's doing the damage. Yeah. It's how much we use, not how many of us there necessarily right. are. And you know, your point, I can't remember what state it was in India, I think it was Kerala, where they you know, gave women education, but culture didn't change fast enough, high female suicide rate. Yeah. If we look at Afghanistan well, after the, you know, the Americans go in in 2001, uh, women believed life was going to get better. Since 2010, regularly Afghan women pour you know, containers of petrol over the head and light themselves up because life is miserable. They know it's not going to get better and now they're sure it's going to get worse. So... These changes, you have to get multiple changes at once. So you up education, you up reproductive rights, but you also have to make sure they can do something with both things. Yeah, well, it's about power. That's right, and that yeah. can be slow to shift. So you know, if we get to power, and again, that's an, uh, an interesting place to end up. We sort of have the classic argument between you know, Jean Baudrillard and Michel Foucault, where Foucault thought power was real. Whereas Baudrillard was, no, you only have to be able to simulate it well. You only have to look like you can win. You don't actually have to be able to win because if you look like you can win and you win, it didn't matter how you got there. So the size of a crowd and how wound up a crowd looks and how organized they are, doesn't actually matter if that's enough. What matters is that the system thinks it's enough. How rattled is the system? So when you start talking about divestment in the book, the number of places in the world now where it is just no longer acceptable to have shares, you know, in a fossil fuel company. That's wonderful that that's being normalised. And the problem is here for Australians is we still live in this place that should be enlightened and sophisticated and is still, you know, manipulated by 
you know, fossil-related industries. It is, but the investment community and activists within it are getting increasingly sophisticated, mm. winning um, shareholder resolutions, winning seats on mm. boards, winning um, quite high-profile legal cases here and elsewhere. Mm. At some point, there's going to be serious capital flight. Mm. Um, Mark Carney, who was the um, governor of the Reserve Bank in the in the UK, warned about this in 2015. It's mm. like this can be orderly and it can be managed and it can be careful as far as the investment risk mm. or it can be an avalanche. Mm. And some people still haven't heard him. And clearly, most of the investment community in Australia hasn't because, you know, our big four banks are still heavily invested in these industries mm. and at some point there's going to be a stampede. I, 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 I totally resent the fact that to... to do anything to make any kinds of changes we have to play on this like free market board like i'd rather than just flip the whole monopoly board off the table like we, we why is it down to consumer decisions to make these well it depends on your theory of change in a mm. sense what you would hope for is that through democratic practice you can elect a parliamentary majority that just regulates this problem out of existence mm. now that for the moment, a lot of those lines of actions have been curtailed through oh, state capture. Totally. So for sure, go in and burn the money down because at yeah. least they pay attention to that. Yeah, yeah. that's all they pay attention to. Well, that, they but also the money. destruction of social license, which mm. is a, another way to a similar end. So I think mm. at this point, we've got to look at a wider range of tactics. And I think absolutely selecting key elements of the network and choosing parts of it to bankrupt mm. is absolutely on the table at the moment. That's mm. really cool. <laughs> well, have a, have a look at how adeptly the Adani campaign has operated. That, yeah. that mine has had its paperwork for years. They wanted to be shipping coal in 2014. Yeah. They've got a lock on state and federal politics. How come they're not shipping coal? Yeah. It's because of how, I mean, firstly, you've got very powerful First Nations communities in that part of the world who've grounded the campaign and, and drawn a line. And then you've got this very adept campaign that smashed up the supply chain and the finance and the insurance. Um, so these are these yeah. are kind of non-traditional campaign tactics that don't re don't revolve around flipping marginal seats. They're going directly at the heart of the problem. I think it's valuable to learn from. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I always focus on the problem of state capture is the part of the state that is being captured, as opposed to then mm. focusing your attack on the cap. Look Cap at who's teams. doing the capturing. Yeah, yeah that's but right. Again, part of this comes back down to where the productive boundary is uh, in an economy. So the fact that since the 1970s we've moved everything, you know, in the fire industries, you know, finance, insurance, and real estate from the unproductive side to the productive side means they've got so used to being greedy and think they can make money, which means they are the most vulnerable thing within the coin doubling game because they're the newest ones to have been allowed onto the productive side. Historically, no one liked them. <laughs> you know, people were willing to make money out if they were rich enough, but no one liked those industries. You know, no sort of economist historically with any kind of conscience let them on the productive side of the ledger. Mm. We made the great mistake of putting them on the productive side, so we now we need to change the ledger. The ledger is not about whether you are on the productive or unproductive side. The ledger is about, is there anything redeemable about your mm. behavior? It becomes a moral ledger as well as a productive ledger. It does, and it becomes a life or death ledger when the whole eastern seaboard's on fire and people are fleeing for their lives. Yeah. And that's ultimately what this looks like on the ground. Yeah, and your descriptions of that are fantastic because what you realize is that was resonating to such a level at the time. And then we rolled into COVID right. and we got a new kind of fear. And see, this is part of the thing of making the comment that 19 year olds to 25 year olds need to remember they're dangerous. 
fear has been so normalized post 9-11 mm-hmm. as a tool of control. Like historically, what you needed to fear was you know, the state. It was the most consistently repressive thing in most places on earth for most of the last 2,000 years. Mm-hmm. You know, it was the state that was going to do you the most harm mm. or could, benign ones existed. Fundamentally, the state learned a whole new trick after 9-11, and that is to go, ooh, we can tell you that you're in danger and that we're protecting you. And for the first time since World War II, it's not total bullshit. <laughs> it's three-quarters bullshit, but not total bullshit. Yeah, right. So when you say, remember that we can be dangerous, imagery perhaps even of, of violence comes to mind. I mean, look how much the rioting and looting and stuff for the Black Lives Matter movement. Is that a just an extension of saying, you know, terrorism bad? Like, <laughs> Yeah, but this is the problem. The state's even better now at going, oh, you were violent. You're as bad as them. Right, right. And so, because, but people have internalized that. Like yeah. for me to say to my friends that not necessarily being violent, but but the, the threat of violence yeah, the threat is, is very powerful. But they're, they're not on board with that. It's like there's too much violence in the world no, already. That's the, it shows how effective the domestication program well, is. Exactly. In your reading for the book, Scott, did you think at any point of throwing some Franz Fanon in? The whole idea of you know, catharsis? Um, no, I didn't. And you'll, you'll be able to throw, in fact, you already have thrown a couple of fascinating references at me that would have made their or could have made their way into the book. Ultimately, the book lost about 40% of its yeah. volume. Yeah, when you got to the end, you made Well, when my work, editors it saw it huge. and said, you have got to be kidding. Yeah, this it's just so big <laughs> stop, and amazing. Stop stop working on this and yeah. let's start turning it into something that people will be able to read. Yeah. So there's a, there's a ton of of powerful stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor. The stuff that hurt the most wasn't so much theorists past and present, but some of the testimony, the activists that I met yeah. from around the world. So it's flawed, it's partial, it's not possible. No, it's really not flawed. It's cover. a fantastic yeah, book. It is, but it's a jumble, you could but. make, no, because the flow from your experience to then being somewhere, the, to connecting it to the history of the world, constantly reinforces the major themes. Thematically, it works brilliantly. Well, I appreciate that, yeah. especially as you had it read to you from by some cyborg. Yeah, yeah synthetic so voice. I'm even so, more impressed. Yeah, like when it can work despite the fact that my <laughs> phone reading it to me yeah. is a good indicator of how well it works. But yeah, this is going to be one of these questions because when you're talking about the indigenous communities who you know stopped uranium mining you know, in the Northern Territory and stuff, where they've been at this for decades, you know, doing it in a calm, slow, steady way because they've got nowhere else to be and they don't want to be anything other than the people they are on the land they are a part of. That steadfastness is a wonderful lesson, but it's also the lesson of people who are used to being under pressure and used to dealing with pressure in people who are used to resisting. Whereas normally when people start resisting, when they wake up, and I'm not using the word woke, I can't stand the word woke, when people wake up and become aware mm. as opposed to woke, normally there's going to be a burst of cathartic behavior where there is a likelihood of burning something, painting something, or breaking something. Mm-hmm. And it's the interesting difference between steadfastness, which works, and the cathartic rage, which gives the state an opportunity to go, oh, you're as bad as the terrorists we've been talking about for 20 years. It's the difference as well between somebody like me who came from background of privilege who chose the campaign, right? Like yeah. I'm traveling down to the forests or I'm traveling to a uranium mine blockade by choice. Yeah. But these old people, whether it's the Kungas in central South Australia who fought 
more radioactive waste dump proposals than I can remember. Yeah. Or the mob in the Northern Territory who had to fight uranium mine in Kakadu, those campaigns choose them. They don't yeah. get the opportunity for catharsis or for any of this mm, stuff yeah. for them. It's life or death. And yeah. it puts it shortens lifespans. It kills people, that kind yeah. of pressure. So it is it is a kind of a privilege to be able to choose it and to stay in those fights for the long term. Um, and I feel like I've had the privilege of being able to do that for some communities. And you know, that there's an extension of the frontier wars, this undeclared, unconcluded war that continues yeah. to this day on this ground, is that even now the Commonwealth government is proposing to dump radioactive waste out at Kimber on the peninsula. Yeah. And has excluded a huge number of voices, including Aboriginal First Nations voices, from that from that fight. This isn't finished, and for for something like anti nuclear campaigning, which was my lineage, Your gateway I guess, drug, yeah, yeah, it's that you have to think in intergenerational terms. It, yeah. Firstly, because people have been fighting this for generations, and secondly, because this hideous waste is going to be around for tens yep. of thousands of years. It forces you into a geological perspective, whether you're ready or not. Yeah. So you have to wake up and become aware and then learn how to sustain the slow and steady pace of Con applying pressure. Conception of time is not that. No, which is another thing that has to be changed is the instantaneous world of celebrity and TikTok basically has to be drowned and replaced <laughs> with a sense of you're going to be here for a long time and everyone else is going to be here when you're gone. Well, that's a fascinating uh, dichotomy of what we were talking about earlier, the kind of technocracy or whatever you want to call it, where we were saying, you know, by way of GoPro, we can televise the revolution. Well, no, you televise the horrors that the state does to you. Right. It's inverting the panopticon. Yeah. Mm. I, I saying, think there's something powerful about yeah. that. But then there's sort of a, a flip side to that, which is that part of those technologies are yeah. diminishing us. Yeah, well, look, this is any tool can be used either way. That's so true. we look at Tiananmen, you know, the fact that Bob Hawke stood up in Parliament and read what the Australian Embassy thought had happened in Beijing. They were told days later by students who still wanted asylum that it wasn't as you know he'd read out on TV, it wasn't what the Embassy thought had happened. It was still a massacre, and students still wanted to escape China, and there was still no media from within the square because we don't have the technology we have now. So really, if you tell the story as it is, as it happened, and only what happened, and don't spin it, that's the history that eventually comes back and can't be destroyed. That's where the GoPros or the protest or whatever else are important. Not in what a PR consultant can do it to it now, but think, over 10 yeah. years, what we can do to build a history. This is how the captured state behaves. Mm. And I think new technologies or the fast dispersal of new technologies opens these sometimes fairly brief moments of slippage before the establishment figures out what to do about it. And yeah. I think one of the things that they've done with this rare and rather beautiful moment when social media channels emerge and suddenly you could bounce your image of police violence to an audience of millions, mm. didn't matter who you were. Mm. They can't necessarily shut that down in all parts of the world, but what they can do is flood the zone with bullshit and brain poison to just yeah. drown the signal out. Signal's still there, yeah. but you have to be looking for it and yeah. that takes... A, that takes an attention span yeah. uh, and a certain amount of, of discrimination. But these moments of slippage happen in other mm. ways, in quite unpredictable ways. Sometimes they're driven by technology and sometimes different organisational cultures mm. or different emergencies that unfold. Mm. Um, it's, pro it's profoundly unpredictable. We should look for those moments where they are and back people in when mm. they find themselves in those situations. And it's the similarity, in a sense, between geological time and human time is crazy things happen in a blip. But if they're important, the consequences last and change everything that comes after. So sometimes you can't see the event for 
all the, the trees around it or all the alternate images that the state puts forward. But over time it has enough of an event and enough people find it and are changed by it that things are different after. And this is where I think you writing about you know, the indigenous communities who've never stopped fighting is such an important lesson because we have no history in Australia mm. other than the early period of the union movement of consistent pressure. Yeah. That consistent pressure long since died. Oh, yeah. Whereas here we've got a group of people that Australia doesn't see. Australia doesn't see Indigenous people living on their land in the way they prefer. Mm. It doesn't see how they do that with a lack of real resources. You know, that we don't give them what they need to flourish, despite the fact they were here first. Yeah. So, you know, there's so many big themes in your book. I was trying to work out what even direction to take talking to you today and it's just like letting the brain randomly find stuff again you seem to have done all right because there's so much <laughs> interesting stuff i'm so glad you think so oh it's great and yeah anytime you want to come back and talk about it more seeing there's so much in it just yell zoom is a beautiful thing yeah it is all right that makes me really happy scott can i ask just as a kind of final aside how does someone so erudite poignant how do you how does this get missed you know in your time in the senate like i'm read so much about people who couldn't string an intelligent sentence together, much like I'm struggling to now. But, you know, I mean, obviously I, I understand the idea that Murdoch Media don't, doesn't want to put your, you know, whatever speech on the front page. But it's just, I mean, you've had that, you've had that experience of trying to make that work and not in that world anymore. Was it just so disheartening? Like, a, I'd love to know what your reflection on that Time was period of time. No, not disheartening at all. The opposite. I was at a Greens event last night with um, Barbara Pocock, who we're hoping is going to be our next senator Mm -hmm. in South Australia, and having a similar conversation about is it worth it, particularly because some of the themes in the book traverse this idea that if these machines are captured, what should we even bother? Um, Mm. And no, I I loved almost every minute in that place because yes, it's a brittle captured machine, but it still allows us a degree of agency. It's a place that elites have carved out. Folk mm. like me and Barbara aren't necessarily meant to be in there, but we can. Mm. We do. This is this is the difference between state capture and oligarchy, mm. is that we do have degrees of freedom. Three mm. of us can have this conversation at relatively little personal risk. Yep. No one's going to follow us out of the studio. Mm. We could organise, um, you know, an electoral insurgency in a meeting mm. last night. Yep. Um, we we still do have these degrees of freedom that, yeah. that would separate us out from a true oligarchy or a dictatorship. Mm. And so in Parliament, I'd come from a broadcast activist background. The idea of having the agency, the resources, the travel budget, communications budgets, these incredible staff, this team, was resources beyond my wildest dreams and we made the absolute best of them that we could. And the great thing is on the Hansard record, even if it never made it in the Murdoch press, is every thoughtful thing you ever said that your team helped you work out how to say. Well, and the people that we there. helped open the door for as yes. well. The, prou- the stuff that I'm proudest of is helping the old ladies from the Barclay Ridge in the Northern Territory yeah. rebuff, you know, with the help of a lot of allies and a lot of other talented people, but principally to back those old people in the Northern Territory against a uranium radioactive waste dump. We stopped yep. an internet filter. We pushed the public transport agenda along. There's a bunch of stuff that we did that I'm proud of, large yep. and small. And it's there and it lasts. And this is sort yeah. of your point of going back to that geological record in Biblos. At a certain point, all you've got left is the fossils. All you've got left is what happened. And that even if for ages you couldn't see the result of it, enough people kept finding it and going, hang on, that means something else is possible. Right. 
That means there's something to build on. That means there's someone who knows how to do this. And that plus expecting it's not going to get better and expecting it is going to get worse, plus technology, plus being an educated population, is not a bad foundation. Mm. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. when, when you're in the camp in Bangladesh and there's little kids who could be traumatised, sucking on their thumb and rocking back and forth, and said so they're bouncing around, yelling hello at you and wanting to be in photos. And what you go is humans are remarkable in that there's a desire to bounce back and to connect and be a part of something nice that is more or less inclusive. Mm. Unless it's crushed entirely and for a very long time. And each generation, it tries to have another go. Each little kid starts with that desire to be part of something better. The system can beat it out of them, but the system will have to beat it out of their kids as well. Mm. And eventually that gets really tiring for a system to know it can't ever get a total victory. It always has to beat the next generation as well. Yeah. There's, well, and it hasn't. Mm, no. mm. There's, there's, like a, there's a deep sense of optimism in this, what has been a solemn conversation and, <laughs> and has been largely a criticism because to be a critic, effectively, you're offering up the idea that things could be better. <laughs> yeah, well, again, it's an active mm. optimism. And I sure. can't remember the three authors who wrote a great book called Resilience, but they make the point passive optimism is a waste of time. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It has to be an active optimism. Like, what are you going to do to try and bring that positive thing to fruition? Can I ask really briefly, Scott? Sorry, what if uh, for our listeners who probably are all critics, uh, what what would you offer as like a get involved thing to do now? Uh, I wouldn't be so precocious as to know because I think that answer is different to every for everybody. That makes sense. So I'll say two quick things. One is, in the broadest sweep, you're likely this is a long fight. This is an intergenerational one. So find something that you love to do. I know it's trite, but like you've got to find something that's that feels worthwhile for you, that's going to be different for everybody. Some people love to paint banners, write stories, do podcasts, climb onto the roof of Andrew Constance's office in Bega and get arrested, go on strike. Find your thing. Yeah. Find your thing. That's yeah. the first thing. Is it's going to That answer will be different for everybody. The second thing is this. According to the, the smartest people who study this stuff for their entire lives, we've got about a decade or probably less to bring nearly all of the fossil fuel combusting power stations on this planet to a standstill before we plunge through this, this geological brake failure where what we start to do will, will cease to matter. And so, yes, find your thing, but also we have to start shutting these fossil fuel power stations down as rapidly as we can. We don't have till 2050. Mm. We don't even mm. really have till 2030. Mm. We tried this in the 90s. We tried the Clean Energy Act yeah. uh, in the mid-2000s. The oligarchs knew better, they broke it, they rolled it back. Now we're out of time, we have to start bankrupting stuff. Mm. So yes, find your vibe, find the thing that you love, but also let's really get to work. Mm. Scott Ludlam, thank you very much for your time today. I have really enjoyed it. Thanks for the time. Thank you, and thank you listeners. Hello audience, thank you for listening to Blind Insights. If you're enjoying the show, please remember to subscribe and share your favourite episodes or leave us a review if you really love us. We'd love to hear from you. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter at Blind Insights or send us a recorded question to the email in the description to feature on an episode. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the Ozcast Network. Peace out.